And we're in 1 John chapter 2. You can turn there. This is an amazing part of scripture. I know I'm going slow, but it's kind of rich. Got to go slow when it's rich. Let's pray. Father, we're looking at your word now, so we pray for insight and understanding as John comforts the saints and brings forth truths about Christ and that are precious and world-changing. And we just ask you to help us to understand all this today in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to do some like theology stuff today, and we're going to look at some scriptures. So put your theology hat on, your doctrine hat. And if you don't have a doctrine hat, just listen carefully. Take what you can. It's okay. So this letter of John, what we call 1 John, is a letter written to certain people in a certain time. Those attending churches in Asia Minor, they had experienced something difficult, and he's writing this letter to them. We've said that many, many times. Most of the New Testament actually has a specific audience in mind. Like there's a specific reason to write. So um, the Bible's not... You ever, you know, see like people like, that like doctrine, they like, well, give me a textbook, you know, that lays it all out. And the Bible is not a textbook. It's not, doesn't do that. It's not an essay or anything like that. It's, it's history and letters and prophecy to real people in real places dealing with real issues. And um, each letter or book, though, is also for us because we, like them, are struggling to live for Jesus and value Jesus under the new covenant in the real world. So an essay doesn't really help that much, but seeing how real people were addressed by God and dealt with in these situations is helpful to us because we, because we, you know what, human nature hasn't changed at all. And the, the issues of the world really aren't any different now than they were a long time ago. So what John writes to Christians then applies to all Christians in the church age of which we are a part, we're all called to be faithful to the living God. So all of us who follow Jesus since he came will know how to conduct ourselves until he returns. That's what scripture is for. It's for us to know how to do all of that. So we are to be about his business, right? So what John is addressing in the first century are things that Christians face in every generation. So they're always relevant. I mean, Paul said scripture is God-breathed, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, it's God-breathed and it's profitable. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. For example, the scripture gives uh, qualifications for church leaders. There isn't any qualification in 2,000 years ago that isn't immediately relevant today. They're the exact, they're, they're for all people because people Human nature doesn't change, and human being interactions are the same, and godliness is the same in every generation. There's nothing new or different about it. So human nature is exactly what it was in the garden in terms of how we were created and how we fell. So this letter is John writing to churches about what a real Christian is. That's his subject right now. And the question came up because some of the folks had left the church to join a cult, right? So... Why did they leave and how do we know if we're going to leave and what does that mean that they left and what does it mean for us now? So the, and that question hasn't changed either because that still goes on all the time. A true Christian, a true Christian is determined, you can tell, 
on exactly the same terms as you could tell 2,000 years ago. See, that's another thing that hasn't changed. So, John gives this series of tests, these specific signs of an authentic Christianity. So remember, I'm just going to walk through them real quick. So there was the obedience test. You could call it the moral test. So simply put, a, a true Christian wants to obey God. That's what they, they'll do. So first, John 2.6 beautifully sums that up. The one who says he abides in him, in Christ, ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. That's pretty clear. We talked about the love test. Verse 9 of chapter 2. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So a real Christian loves. The third test, the most recent one we talked about, you could call the endurance test. True Christians won't leave. They won't leave Jesus. They went out from us, verse 19 says, they went out from us but they were not really of us for if they had been of us, those people that joined the cult, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. So they weren't all real Christians, and the ones that weren't left and joined a cult. The real Christians stayed where the truth about Jesus was being proclaimed and in the Christian community there. So remaining with Christ is a sign of authenticity as well. So now we come to the fourth test, and I think we should call it the doctrinal test. So if we belong to Jesus, we are persuaded by the Holy Spirit of certain central truths about the Lord. That doesn't mean all of our doctrine is perfect in all the different areas. There's lots of room for discussion. But on the key things, the Holy Spirit tells us that's true. And we're, when key things we're talking about is who Jesus is and how you're saved. Those are the key things. So if we belong to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us. And what he teaches us is not something you could reason yourself to. It's given to us by the Holy Spirit. So verse 20, it says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So, when I say you can't reach, um, you can't arrive at this understanding of Jesus through reason, I'm not saying it's unreasonable. It's very reasonable. It's just that human beings will never get there on their own without the Holy Spirit. There's reasons for that. You could say it's just too wonderful. It's, it's too glorious. It's so beautiful that no one ever thought of it until God announced it. And that's actually true. Nobody thought of anything like the Christian gospel until Jesus came. So what is that? Well, what is that truth? Well, it's that the, an infinite God, a holy God, a completely righteous God, became a real human being, a true man, to rescue wicked men from themselves and make them his children. There's no gods that ever did that before or since. There's God the creator, infinitely above us, infinitely pure, infinitely good, and there's man, the creature, tiny, tiny, tiny little man, created with all these wonderful qualities in God's image, and yet wicked and corrupt. And God has this incredible love towards wicked and corrupt, tiny little men made in his image. So God, God teaches before Jesus came, for centuries after century, God taught human beings about this idea of sacrifice for sin. For centuries he did that. 
Sin has to be atoned for. The wages of sin is death. And, and before Jesus came, animals would die to picture what was coming with him. But animals had to die to explain it. Thousands of animals. Tens of thousands of animals. Millions of animals, literally, over the years. Uh, rivers of blood. Because sin is so pervasive. And all human beings are sinners. And the creator also tells man that he is coming. And he gives a date for when he's coming. And he does come. He came in the time Jesus came. He didn't come as a mighty ruler, but first he came as a humble man. A rabbi, a, a teacher. But this humble man, Jesus, he's really a man. But he's a man like the world has never seen before. Or since. He has great powers over disease, even over nature itself, and over death. And he is the creator, God, incarnate. Do you know what that word means? Carne. Who eats carne? <laughs> it's meat, right? It's infleshed. He actually became human, truly human. So he could become the only sacrifice that actually does take away human sin. Animal sacrifices never really took it away. The Bible says that, but he did. So the creator and judge of all bears the penalty for his loathsome creatures, sins. He bears the penalty for them. The judge takes the place of death for the condemned to save them. That, that's the greatest truth in the world. And when you hear that and believe it, the Holy Spirit has told you that that's true. Because most people don't care about that. So God is murdered by sinners to save sinners. It's the greatest, most astounding concept ever. It's not unreasonable. It's just too wonderful to be imagined. So it never entered the human mind until it actually happened. So could the limitless God be so full of love? Because that, is that even possible that he could be? People love me, the, the wicked one. How can we actually believe that? Well, if you look at Jesus up close in Scripture, how can we deny it? How can we deny that great love? When we see perfection, who was he? I mean, who was Jesus Christ? That's the, really the big question. And why doesn't everybody just embrace Jesus? Because he's so wonderful. Well, there's a biblical explanation for that. Now, you could say, well, maybe they haven't heard it. Of course, some people haven't heard it. Or you could say, um, it just isn't credible to the modern mind or those kind of things. But the reality is the biblical explanation not only explains, not only explains unbelief, people that just don't care or don't want to hear it, but the eagerness people have to believe man-made reinterpretations of Jesus like this cult that was going around in the first century and like the cults that are around today like Gnosticism that was the cult John was dealing with sin is not our problem the Gnostics said I don't know how they came up with that <laughs> but they said ignorance is our problem well there's people today that believe that the only problem with mankind is ignorance. And if only we teach him. That was what the Enlightenment was all about. What, did the Enlightenment bring peace and love and joy to the world? No. It, it brought a lot of interesting philosophical speculations, but it didn't change human nature at all. Or Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is only an archangel. He's not God the Son. Or the Mormons. Jesus is no different from us at all. He's just farther along on the path than we are. 
or progressive Christianity. Jesus is a community organizer. He's, he's just a man. He's, there's nothing magical about him or spiritual or deep. Why do they reject what the Bible says about Jesus? Why do that? Because he's so amazing. Why do they reject the greatest story that's ever entered into the human mind, that God would do that for us? The problem is, here's the reason why. Human beings are not merely sinners. The sin they are guilty of is rebellion. That's why they're rebellious against God. Humans have a hard time believing the truth because it's not because they're, they're neutral. They're not neutral. They have a hard time because they're not neutral. They're not objective. I just look at everything objectively. No, you don't. You have a nature that's rebellious. That was the first sin. That was Satan's sin. That's the sin Satan brought to Adam and Eve, and that's the sin they bought into. And human beings have been that way ever since. It's, it's the human nature. Rebellion is the first sin. So humans are predisposed against the truth. They're part of this larger rebellion by nature, because we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, as they say in the Narnia books. And the father of lies, as Jesus called Satan, Jesus called him the father of lies, He's happy if you have a different Jesus than the real one. He's happy about that. He will accept and promote anything that's not the real Jesus. So if you make up a new Jesus or a different Jesus that has different kinds of strengths or whatever, different things that people want to say about him, he's an angel, he's this, he's cosmic this, or the cosmic consciousness of Christ or whatever, he's fine with that. As long as it's not the real Jesus that died for your sins, God the Son in human flesh. As long as it's not that, Satan is very happy. But Jesus is not any made-up version. So why, what's special about us? Why don't we believe those lies of Satan? Well, we talked about it last week. Our faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not anything better about us or wiser about us or more holy about us. He has awakened our dead hearts to the truth. It's, a, it's an act of grace from God. This is actually the promise of the New Covenant. It, it, it talks about it in the Old Testament several times, hundreds of years before Jesus came. In fact, we read one of those passages this last Tuesday in our Through the Bible in a Year group. We meet on Tuesday afternoons, people that are reading the Bible through in a year. And we came across this one, Ezekiel eleven nineteen. This is what God promised his people who were so wicked. He said in the future, he said, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances to do them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. That's the great promise of the Old Testament to rebellious, wicked, idolatrous Israel. Someday he said, I'm going to do that. He's the actor there. That was Ezekiel 11:19. That's the promise to Israel, but in Christ, everyone who turns to Christ, Jew or Gentile, any, from anywhere in the world, anyone the Spirit awakens, they have that same promise, a new heart. What's the difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh? A heart of stone says, I'm not really interested, I don't care, 
uh, it's great for you, wonderful. The heart of flesh says, that is the greatest reality on earth. Jesus is the most incredible person who ever lived. He's God the Son. That, I, I want that. I want that forgiveness and I want to know him. I want to live for him because he's worthy. That, that's the difference. <laughs> Pretty big difference, actually. You can't give yourself a new heart, but God can. God can. If I have a stone heart, I can't, I can't make it flesh. I can, I can chisel off some of the rougher edges of the rock. I can stop doing this or maybe do that instead, but I can't love God without the Holy Spirit giving me a new heart. God can do it and does it for every person that he redeems. He gives us his spirit. His spirit teaches us the truth and that goes back to verse 20 and the anointing he talks about there. The anointing is the presence of the spirit. And this anointing, this direct teaching of the spirit tells us who Jesus is. Tells us the truth about Jesus. So he says in verse 20, you all know. And in verse 21, you know the truth. Because they're the ones that remained. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Well, how does he know they know? Because they were taught by the Spirit. The authentic Christian knows the truth about Jesus and rejects the lies about Jesus. We do not believe the lie. What is the lie? Well, verse 22, here we go. This is what we're actually focusing on today. That was all introduction. <laughs> Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So the liar denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now who would deny that? Well, in, especially in a church. Well, in John's day, the Gnostics denied that. The people who left the church for Gnosticism denied it after they had once said that they believed it and got baptized proclaiming it. They stopped, they stopped believing it. So now, I've got to say this. We're talking about Christ here, right? So the text says, um, denying Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. So this is, not, this is not believing that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not a Jewish context here. So the context of who's being written to is really important. That's why I brought that up earlier. Really important. Who's he writing to and why? These are Gentiles who converted to Christianity. And Gnosticism is not a Jewish cult. It's a Gentile cult. It's based on Greek philosophy. The, base, the main idea is that the spirit is good and, the, and anything physical is evil, created by a, a, an evil God. This world, our bodies, everything else. And, and Jesus came from this emanation to free us from our bodies. Ignorance was our problem, not sin. That's what they would say. So the biblical idea of the incarnation of God becoming flesh, taking to himself human flesh, was totally abhorrent to the Greek mind in those things. They re and the Gnostics rebelled against that idea. The Christ, they said, is this semi-divine being who came into the world to liberate mankind from the material world. That's what they said. So the Gnostics said Jesus couldn't be the Christ because he was a man with a body. So he can't be the Christ and the flesh is evil and he had flesh. Gnosticism had different schools and different doctrines about some things but all of them 
separated the man Jesus from the Christ. Say, so what does that mean? Well, this is how it works. And there's people that believe this today. We know that... Um, This is what they say. He was a man, a real man. Jesus was a man. Born in Bethlehem. And he was a good man. And the Christ, this emanation from one of the lesser creatures out in the universe, one of the lesser gods, inhabited him. To give wisdom. To set us free. That's what they believe. You see, Jesus and the Christ are two different things. And they believe that Jesus was a man until he was in his 30s. And then this entity came upon him. That was when he was baptized. The spirit coming upon him. That's how, how they, they read it. And it left him before the crucifixion. Because it wasn't going to die. It skedaddled. The, the Christ left Jesus to die on the cross. So, And that didn't have any meaning. Dying on the cross had nothing to do with our sins or anything like that. So this early form of Gnosticism that John had to confront. Taught that Jesus was a normal human being. He was a man used by the Christ. This emanation from the ultimate God, the unknowable God. So we know that we know about the Gnostic school of uh, a guy named Valentinus, who was in the second century. He taught that very thing. In fact, um, the we, the way we know a lot about Gnosticism is from um, a disciple in the second century named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was the disciple of a guy named Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of this guy named John. That wrote this. So his like spiritual grandson if you will. Wrote a big fat book on Gnosticism. Because they were still fighting it in the second century. It was just starting at John's time. But it became the dominant uh, rival to Christianity in the second century. So, um, so he wrote all about what they believe. Anyway the school of Valentin Valentinus in the second century taught that Jesus wasn't the Christ. He was inhabited or you could say possessed even by the, the Christ when he got baptized. So that's the whole idea. So for them the Christ is upon Jesus. He's in Jesus but he's not Jesus. So when he says that's the lie that Jesus is not the Christ that's what he's talking about in this particular context. So the man Jesus was just a vessel for the Christ to use to teach the gnosis, the secret knowledge and all of that. Okay, so we talked about the Gnostics and what they believe. Man's problem isn't sin. It's ignorance. That's it. Now you can see how this whole idea about the Christ and, and this man Jesus is totally contrary to everything the Bible says. So you can't be a Bible person and believe this stuff. You have to leave, right? So you can see why there's a doctrinal test to see who's authentic. You have to believe certain things. But because false doctrines not only deny the reality of who God is and who Jesus is, but they deny human beings salvation. Because if you're a Gnostic, you're not even seeking salvation. And if you're in some other kind of cult, you're seeking it the wrong way, through your own efforts and not through God's grace. So verse 22 asks this question, who is the liar? The lie denies the incarnation. God's means of saving poor sinners like us. It denies that. It's the one who in this case has separated from Jesus from the Christ. That's what's going on right here in this text. So verse 22 says this is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. So we talked about the Antichrist some weeks ago in verse 18. You heard that Antichrist is coming even now many antichrists have appeared. So this horrible antichrist character is coming in history sometime in the future to John's time and arts too. But he says even now many antichrists have appeared. Well who are they? Those are the ones who teach that Jesus is not actually God. Incarnate. 
They're the Antichrist. They serve Satan. So obviously Satan would much rather you believe in a phantom Jesus than in the real Jesus, right? I mean, that would be his great goal. A made-up Jesus who cannot address our sin or who has no interest in our sin. So the Gnostics would say Jesus isn't about sin. If you've got sin, that's your problem. That's not what he's about. Don't even worry about that. You need to escape your material form. And he has the secret knowledge to help you do that. That's what they would tell you. But you know what? If you have the Holy Spirit, if you have the anointing, you can't be fooled. You can't be fooled about this. The cult stuff is going to bounce off. Because when the Spirit of God removes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, it comes with truth. It comes with truth. It comes with doctrines. So doctrines matter. Somebody tells you the gospel and you read it uh, in the Bible or somebody tells it to you and the Spirit of God tells you that it's true. That's how you come to Jesus. It's a miracle. It's the greatest miracle. It's the miracle of conversion. I mean, you know, there's some pretty big miracles in the Bible and it's really cool that, you know, an Egyptian army drowned in the sea and all those kind of fun things, but um, there's no greater miracle than that God took your heart of stone out and gave you a heart of flesh. There's no greater miracle than that. That he transformed you so that you would believe the truth about Jesus and have him in your life and live with him forever because he paid for your sins. It's the Antichrist who denies that, who denies the Father and the Son, verse 22 says. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So if you say Jesus is a vessel for the Christ and not the Christ himself, you're denying that Jesus is the Christ, one and the same person. That's the key point here. And through that, you're denying the Father and the Son. You are denying that the Son is the eternal God as the Father is the eternal God. So if you say Jesus is a vessel, you can't say the truth about it at all. Now it kind of sounds like you're talking about the Trinity here, that awesome doctrine that's so hard to understand. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. So we're talking about two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. We'll get to the Spirit in a little bit. So when you separate Jesus from the Christ, you immediately deny his unique relationship to the Father as the only begotten Son. You're denying that. That doesn't even come into the picture. And John, in his gospel, brilliantly develops the true nature of the Father and the Son in terms of who they really are and how they relate to one another. So we're going to turn there to John chapter 1. I could go through the whole gospel, but we'd be here past the baptism. So we're just going to look at John chapter 1, okay? The gospel of John. And stick something here. We'll hop back to 1 John 2 in a little bit. But we're going to be here for a little while. So the truth is, Jesus as the Christ, not just uh, the vessel for the Christ, is inextricably bound up with his place as the eternal Son of God. So we're going to remind ourselves about that now. We're, we're, um, we're going to compare the Gnostic idea of the man Jesus being a separate person from the Christ. We're going to compare that with what John says in John chapter 1. Okay, of course it be he begins with this incredible prologue, which someday we'll study fully. But here it is, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Wow, that gets your attention. He was in the beginning with God, verse 2. Verse 3, all things came into being through him. 
and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So this word who was with God and was God created everything. He's the creator. Verse 10. Skip down to verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's, there is God's will there being the basis of our salvation again. But note, the one who made the world came unto his own. What does that mean? The incarnate Jesus was part of the Jewish community. He was a Jew, right? He came unto his own people. His fellow Jews. That same person, that same person made the world. That blows the whole Gnostic system out right there. There's no distinction made between the word of God and his earthly life. That's who it is. The word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word was among His people. It was Him. Skip to verse 14. Now here it comes. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 15. John He's talking about John the Baptist. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The Word, the Creator, became flesh. And then... Pay close attention. Verse 14 is the first use of the word Father as a title for God. And the word who was with God is first called Jesus in verse 17. The first use of the name and the first use of the title and they're together. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. One person. There is no sense, suggestion in any way that with Jesus Christ we're talking about two people or two personalities or two entities. Jesus is the Christ. The word the creator became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his singular glory. He's the only begotten from the father. He's from the father. He's not the father. He's from the father. So between Jesus and the Father, there's a distinction of some kind. But the Word who was with the Father is the Creator, co-equal, co-eternal with God. And in case you missed it, John adds verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He is God, but He's also related to God. See this Trinitarian idea in here? <laughs> he has explained Him, He says. So he's called the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, intimately close with the Father. He was, but there's a distinction between the Son and the Father. They love each other. Intimately bound to the Father, but not the Father, yet he's the creator of all things. Nothing has been made that he didn't make, it says back up there in the first verses. So the language of verse, t verse 18 
is an incarnational way to say the word was with God and the word was God. But now it's talking about in the bosom of the Father sent from the Father. One God and two persons are identified, the Father and the Son. The Father is one person and the Jesus Christ is one person. This completely unique relationship is where the doctrine of the Trinity has its foundation. It's right there. You can't really escape it. One God and three persons. So far we have two persons. One more is coming. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> now to solidify Jesus as the Savior and as the eternal God, look what happens in verse 29. This involves John the Baptist too. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, this is John the Baptist talking, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. Okay. He existed before me. A man, he calls him a man, he existed before me. What's the man? Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus was born after John. Did you know that? Luke's gospel tells the whole story about Mary's cousin who had John the Baptist and then, then Mary got pregnant afterwards. So John was born first and Jesus was born second. And here he says, this man existed before me. What man? Jesus. Jesus is the man born after John. They were cousins. John had a beginning and Jesus, as far as his person goes, didn't have a beginning. The incarnation was a beginning of a human life, God dwelling in human flesh, the word become flesh. But Jesus, the, the person he's talking about, existed before him from eternity. You have to look at these little details. <laughs> So do you see it here? The Word is God. The Word is the Creator. The Word became flesh. The Word incarnate is Jesus Christ. He, one person, existed before John. John is saying. There, there's not a separate Jesus and a Christ thing. They're Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. So he's called Jesus Christ. Word. Jesus. Christ. Only begotten. Lamb of God. Same person, same person, a singular person. And finally, verse 33 of John chapter 1, the Son of God. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. I told you he was coming. <laughs> then in verse 34, John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So the Son is the second person of the Trinity and only that accounts for all the information we have here. He's the eternal God. He's not the Father. He's in relationship with the Father but he is eternal, equally eternal. He's the creator of all things even though the Lord God Jehovah is the creator of all things but he did, Christ was doing that with him. So the Son is the second person of the Trinity. Okay, so if you followed half of that at least, hopefully more, but if you did, then let's go back to 1 John chapter 2 real quick. And you should be able to see why John said in 1 John 2.22, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. 
And then in verse 23, he says, whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the son has the father also. You mean I can't have God the father without Jesus? That's exactly right. Why? Because they're inextricably bound together. And Jesus is the one that came into this world to save you. The Father sent him. So if you deny the Son, you're denying the Father and everything the Father's about and everything the Father did. You've got a different God if you deny the Son. You can't know the Father. You can't worship the Father. You can't pursue the Father and reject his Son. You can't do that. Two persons, one divine essence, one God. But two persons are talked about here. Of course, there are three we know. The Son, the Word incarnate, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is grace and truth revealed, the one who explains God to us. He is in every way God as the Father is God. But he's not the same person. There's a distinction of persons there. And the Son is the very heart of God's plan to make God known to the world and to redeem sinners. That's why in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. That's why he says that. There's no way to approach the Father for a sinner except through the Son. Except through the Son. The only people who have the Father are those who confess the Son, he says, who agree with all that the Father says about the Son and all that God is doing through the Son. Verse 24 is directed at those who have remained in Christ. They have remained under the apostolic faith. Verse 24, as for you, now he's talking to those faithful Christians that have stayed, that he's writing to, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And all that stuff in John's gospel is what they heard at the beginning. We, we have no reason to think they didn't have that gospel. But whether John taught it to them verbally and hadn't written that yet or whether they had the gospel itself, that's what he's talking about. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. They're inextricably linked together. Three times he says the word abide in verse 20. Abide means dwells in, settles in, continues in, remains with, that sort of idea. So John is saying keep what you've learned about Jesus. Abide in that, dwell in that. You have the truth. You have everything you need. It's centered on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't abandon that. Faithfulness is the true mark of authenticity. Faithfulness to the truth. So if you know who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you're never going to find anything a cult says attractive. You can't. Well, how does that compare with my Jesus? I've sat down with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and had wonderful conversations, but man, it's like, what have you got to offer me? You're telling me I can become God? Uh, no. You're telling me that I can become where Jesus is now? No. That's silly. You're telling me Jesus is just an archangel? No. How can you possibly believe that after reading the scriptures? Abide in the truth. You're going to see through all that stuff when it comes to you because you abide in the truth and because you have the anointing, you have the Holy Spirit who affirms the truth to you. That's the sign. That's one of the marks of your salvation. You have the true God, the Father and the Son and your redemption from sin is real. It actually happened. 
because Christ bore your sin on the cross. Okay, let's pray. Our great Father, you've given us the truth in your eternal Son, the only begotten God. Your Spirit has opened our hearts to him. And this is all your grace at work. It's your love manifest. So we rejoice in your Son. We confess that he is true. We reject all that Satan says to lead us away from him. So keep us from human pride that brings him down and exalts us. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.